Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Have you as a nurse leader wondered why inpatient units use midnight census of all things to calculate units of service? Have you struggled with determining hours per patient day for your department or unit? Hi, I'm Faith Roberts, your host for this Elite Learning Podcast Series, making sense of dollars and cents, finance, budgeting, and staffing skills for nurse leaders. We've been talking with Pamela Hunt, an expert in healthcare finance, about the challenges of and opportunities to getting more nurses at the bedside and ensuring a balanced schedule. Staffing and scheduling are complex subjects and perhaps the least exciting responsibility on a nurse leader's plate. But knowing how to determine how many staff is needed in a department and when they're needed is a vital skill nurse leaders must demonstrate in today's data-centric healthcare industry. Make no mistake, you will be able to justify your staffing numbers and mix. Pam is here to help us understand how to crunch the numbers and provide that justification. You can read about Pam's background in the show notes that accompany this episode. In those notes or handouts, as Pam calls them, you'll find practical information and resources. Download and refer to the show notes as you listen to Pam or refer back to them when it's convenient for you. Let's get back to Pam's insightful discussion. I'm going to talk about units of service. And in the inpatient area, we, we mostly use midnight census, which drives all of us crazy, right? Because midnight census, what are you going to tell me if we were together? You would be screaming that midnight census does not reflect our admissions, discharges, and transfers. And you're absolutely right. We use midnight census because it's an easy data point to, to get to. But I'm going to show you later how to take care, how to account for those ADTs in your work activities. So hang tight on that. In surgery, you may use major and minor procedures, or you may use OR minutes. So I have a great uh, example of OR minutes and how it, I was re- I was responsible for a surgery uh, department that did both inpatient and outpatient surgeries, then an outpatient surgery center, and we we calculated our volume by the number of inpatients and outpatients total procedures. An outpatient surgery center was built just across the street from us. 65% of our outpatients went to the surgery center. We, of course, kept high anesthesia risk patients. But we, and so we downsized 65% of our staff according to the 60, we downsized staff according to the 65% that were going to leave procedures. When those procedures left and went across the street, we constantly were understaffed and we didn't understand the why. 
And when we went back and did a deeper dive, we got it. You know what? It wasn't, it was 65% of the procedures that went across the street. But if we looked at the number of OR minutes from patient in to patient out of the room, only 11% of the OR minutes went across the street. Why? Because what went across the street was short procedures that did not take long case time, usually only required uh, two people in the room and not three or four, you know, not more scrubs at the table. So those cases were what stayed in the main OR. So really understanding your OR minutes. Many nurse leaders are now responsible for areas such as respiratory, uh, such as uh, the therapies, physical therapy. And they have their challenges as well because oftentimes their units of service are based on billable treatments and some treatments are not billable. So being able to articulate how much time those non-billable treatments are taking is very important so that you don't look like those therapies are being non-productive. All right. Everybody, when I talk to them, everybody wants to say, okay, Pam, I'm a med surge department. What should my hours per patient day be? Or Pam, I'm a critical care unit. What should my hours per patient day be? I can't tell you that. It's not like it's a secret, right? It, I mean, it's not, I'm not telling you because it's a secret. But I'm not telling you because, again, it is so individualized to your department. Let me let me go through some things that questions you should be asking to come up with the answer of are my hours per patient day set correctly? Am I being benchmarked against a benchmark that is most like the unit that I have responsibility for? So here's some department variables. How many patients do you take care of? The larger your unit, the more efficient you can be. In a cardiovascular hospital that I had responsibility for, it was a very sweet setup. We had three separate halls on a floor. Each had eight beds. It was quiet. It was perfect as long as all eight beds were full. But what happens when you have six patients? That's too many for one nurse in a cardiovascular hospital. That's too few, or that's, that's too many patients for one nurse. That's too few to be productive for two. However, the halls were so separate that you could not really safely care for patients on two halls. So when I say the bigger the unit, the more productive you can be, it's that economies of scale. How about the level of intensity of the patient for who is the care is being provided? That has impact on your hours per patient day. That's why obviously we see critical care areas have a higher hours per patient day than what med-surge areas do. The acuity is different. How about contextual issues? 
the architecture and the geography of the unit. If I have to travel a long way because I'm on a 48 bed unit that only has one Pixis, or I'm on a 48 bed unit that only has one storeroom, my hours per patient day are gonna be higher. I met a nurse leader years ago that put in nurse servers in every patient room. And she had the luxury of being a new unit build. And she put those nurse servers in so that they opened to the hallway and into the room. And guess what? It wasn't nursing that supplied those nurse servers for linen and for commonly used supplies, but it was nurses who could access those in the patient room. Their hours per patient day were phenomenally low because she removed all the hunting, gathering, and supplying of room of, of supplies to the patient room from the nursing workload. So you have to know about the architecture of your department. How about patient-specific variables? What's the age and functional ability of your patient? If you're on a, a, a unit that takes a lot of neuro patients that maybe have stroke, head trauma, it takes longer to communicate with those patients. It's going to be more hours per patient day. What about if you are in an area that a lot of your patients do not speak the first language of most of your caregivers? It takes longer to communicate adequately with those patients. How about the severity and the urgency of the admitting condition of your patients? That's a very important one. I was in a hospital once that had an admission unit. So what the admission unit did was in some ways, if you're a very lean thinker, you're going to say to yourself, that puts an extra step of movement in the patient process. And you're right. But the patients went either as a direct admit or from the ER, unless they were going to critical care, they went to an admissions unit where the IV was started, the nursing history was completed, the first antibiotic was hung, the first respiratory treatment was, was completed. You get it. All that admission process was completed before they were admitted to the general medical surgical or post-critical uh, care unit. In that case, those med surge units and post-critical care units had a lower hours per patient day than the average because their admission process was already done for them before that patient arrived to the unit. How about our scheduled procedures done on your, on your unit? There are some organizations that do, you know, bedside uh, G2 placements, uh, bedside endoscopies, uh, bronchoscopies, et cetera. And if you're in that situation, then your hours per patient day would be higher. Something we often forget about, many of you that are listening may be from small hospitals. And in small hospitals, things can get more complicated. Sometimes we don't think about that, but that's the truth. Because in small hospitals, you may not have case management and social service support. Maybe those responsibilities are part of the RN at the bedside. So in that case, your hours per patient day may be higher. How about unit functions? 
if you want to build in time for unit governance to be done with at the staff level the caregiver involved in quality improvement activities. There's no better way to improve quality improvement on your unit than to have a bedside caregiver be the one doing audits or analyzing the data. Evaluation of practice outcomes being done by staff level caregivers. And support, uh, building in support in your unit for professionals to really guide those unlicensed personnel is important and adds to hours per patient day. Here's some staff related variables and why this isn't cookie cutter and I can't tell you what your med surge hours per patient day should be. That when you look at your staff, ask yourself what amount of time or experience has most of my caregivers had with the population that we serve? What's their education level, their preparation, and their certification? How long have they been on the unit? What's their level of control of their practice environment? So that's where, again, that professional practice council comes into, uh, into play, if you will, because research shows, evidence shows that the more control or the more input the bedside caregiver has on their practice environment, the more efficient and the better quality of care is delivered. And the number of competencies. How many competencies are you required to have on your unit? That impacts your hours per patient day. How about organization related? How do you have support for transport? Do you have clerical support? Do you have housekeeping support? Do you have laboratory support or, or do your nurses or nursing assistants act as your phlebotomist? How about access to timely and accurate information? How easy to use is your EMR? All of those, all of those components go in to your hours per patient day. So at this point, I'm gonna pause a minute and say, when you are given your hours per patient day. Make sure that you ask, who am I benchmarked against? Was I leveled, if you will, with an organization or with organizations that have like units and like challenges that I do? Because that then is gonna tell you if that is a realistic hours per patient day to actually be your goal. So once you've determined an hours per patient day, what we're going to go into now is how do I staff this unit? And all of us know, and probably, and many of you have uh, done this before you take your, whatever you've chosen, in, in the case example that I'm going to use for us today, your average daily census multiplied by your budgeted hours per patient day. So in the in the handouts that you're going to uh, that you're going to refer to when you're listening to this, I'm going to do a sample unit and our hours per patient day that we've been budgeted for are 9.15, and our average daily census that's the number that this leader has decided to use is 20. So 
20 multiplied by 9.15 tells me that I need 183 nursing hours in a 24 hour period. Now I wanna take, my next step is to take that 24 hour need of 183 and divide it by the number of productive hours per shift. So I'm probably most likely gonna divide it by either an eight hour shift or a 12 hour shift. And the next, the next uh, slide in your document, in your handout, will show you that if you divide that by eight, it gives you 22.9 eight hour shifts. And if you divide that by 12, it gives you 15.3 hour shifts. So now that I know how many shifts I need, the next important thing is to divide those, uh, those FTEs or those shifts. It's a, it calculates, and in your handout, you'll see a next slide that says, how does the number of shifts calculate or relate to FTEs? And there's another slide that tells you it's the same. So 183 hours per day times five days a week is 915 hours. And then you divide that by 40, it's 22.9 FTEs. So now that I know I need 22.9 FTEs, the next important step, and again, this is in your notes, in your show, in your handouts for this session, you wanna understand as the nurse leader, okay, if I need 22.9 FTEs, how many of those do I need on each shift? And how many of those do I need to be RNs or LPNs or nursing assistants or unit clerk or any other skill mix that I'm deciding to use? So let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, in determining how many you need on days, evenings, or nights, or if it's a 12-hour, it would just be days and nights, you need to look at where your work occurs. So if it's a med-surg unit, most of that work is that that percentage on days, evenings, and nights is going to be what we would call flatter or more equal. Now on days, uh, or excuse me, it's going to be less equal. On days, there's two meal trays that are passed. Uh, you need to ask yourself, when do my physicians or hospitalists make rounds? When are most of the procedures done? So I would have an in and out if I have to transport the patient to another area, depending on who does that. When would that occur? When does therapies come? When does discharge rounds uh, or quality rounds occur? All of those kinds of activities need to be taken into consideration when you, the leader, are determining what percentage of the staff do you need on days, what percentage do you need on evenings, and what percentage do you need on nights. Again, you don't want finance telling you that that's a nursing decision. It is a finance decision, if you will, a very logical decision, numbers based, but based on clinical knowledge. So that's, you want to do the left side of the table of the, of the handout that you will see first. So first you determine what percentage you want on the shift, days, evenings, nights. Next, let's talk about skill mix. I hope everyone that's listening uh, is well aware of the work that our colleague Linda Aiken and 
the team that she works with has done for years on the value of nursing. And you know, their, their, their research shows us in what I wanna say continues to show us over the years of, as they repeat these studies, that the higher the RN ratio, the lower the adverse outcomes for the patient. So patient falls, infection rates, unexplained or non-rescued patients, unexplained death, patient and family satisfaction. Uh, we, we know that those are all tied to a higher RN ratio. We also know as business leaders of our organization that we pay RNs more than what we pay nursing assistants, than what we pay unit clerks, than what we pay licensed practical nurses. We also know in today's environment, you know, this used to not be something I included, I include it now. We also know that we, right now, we can't get enough nurses even if we want them. So we've got to ask ourselves, according to the patients that I have responsibility for, according to the patients that my unit cares for, what skill mix can I provide that gets hands at the bedside and enables us to provide quality care for my patients? Maybe it's not ideal right now skill mix, but it's the skill mix that you can provide the workforce for. So in the example, at the top of the table that you see, you'll see skill mix. And, you know, for the example that I'm using, I put 50% RNs, 40% nursing assistants, and 10% unit clerks. And then it's a matter, once you decide that, once you as the leader decide your percentage on the shift and your skill mix, it's just a matter of doing the math. So taking the number of FTEs and multiplying it by the percentage on days, evenings, and nights, and then multiplying that by the percentage on the shift. And the handout will give you that math. I'm not going to go through that on the podcast. That would be pretty boring, even though I like this work. I get it, you guys. I'm not going to tell you numbers on the podcast. But the next, uh, the next slide in your handout shows you that math completed. So that will be very helpful to you. And then I also have a slide that says, you know, math is great, right? Math is great. But once you do the math and it's pure, you might say to yourself, well, you know what? When I do the math, it comes out that I have a 0.4 FTE of a unit clerk on nights. And I don't need a unit clerk on nights. From If you have an eight-hour shift model, from 11P to 7A, we don't do many, you know, orders or or run to the lab or uh, 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 any copying or any admissions, discharges, transfers, some of those things that unit clerks do for us uh, that, help, uh, that help the care team. So I don't need that at 0.4 FTE on night. So I'm going to take that 0.4 FTE and I'm going to adjust it and maybe I'm going to add it to my complement of RNs on night shift. So this is where you take that and there is a table that says make any adjustments needed. Now at the end, 
you still have to end up, it still has to add up to the same number of FTEs that you calculated previously that you're approved for based on your census that you're using, your, your census point that you're using, and your budgeted hours per patient day. But right now, how you mix them up in your table after the math, you can make some adjustments. Now, another component to staffing that often kind of trips us up a little bit is, okay, that's great. That, that previous table tells me how to staff if I was open Monday through Friday. But most inpatient departments are not open Monday through Friday. So how do I get from transition to Monday through Friday to seven days a week? And the next uh, slide in your handouts shows you equations to account for that seven day a week coverage. So in this case, the equation is you take the number of FTEs needed for that particular shift, multiplied by the number of hours worked per day, multiplied by the number of days to staff. So in this case, it would be seven and then divide that by 40. And that then gives you the number of FTEs that you need to staff 24 seven. So you'll see that example in your handouts and it just, uh, it, you might be amazed about how that increases your number of FTEs because in the example in your handouts, before, just to cover for 24 hours, five days a week, you needed 22.9 FTEs. But when you perform the equation to account for seven day a week, you need 31. So that's quite a jump, 22.9 to 31.7. So don't forget the step that's in the handouts to account for the seven day a week coverage. All right, let's go on. Productive versus non-productive time. Many, many leaders right now are not being allowed to, well, I'm going to pause there. Before pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic, can you think back that far, everyone? Pre-pandemic, many leaders were not being allowed to hire above what they needed just to be productive. And that was so frustrating because why is that frustrating to us? We know that people are going to take time off for family medical leave. People are going to take time off for vacations. Uh, there's going to be illness. We're going to send people to education. We know that we're going to have hours that are not going to be worked at the bedside, at the ED table, at the, at the OR table. And I want to account for those so that I have coverage. The reason why organizations oftentimes hesitate to allow you to hire above what you know you're going to need is because it is very difficult for some leaders to get people off the schedule when you're overstaffed. Currently today, that's hard for you to remember those days, isn't it? It's hard for you to remember the days that you were overstaffed. But when we go back to that someday, and when you are saying, I need to hire above my FTE, and your administration is saying, nope, we're, we're going to cover that with overtime. 
We're going to cover that with resource nurses. We're going to cover that with temporary staffing. We're going to cover that with uh, you getting your part-time people to work more when other people are on vacation and you are frustrated. You're going to know that the philosophy behind that is that when you're overstaffed, sometimes it's hard to tell people to go home or to float them to other units. And that's the reasoning behind that. So when I talk about non-productive time, even though we're not able to hire for it, I think it's important for you to know what that is for your department. Productive time is hours worked. That's pretty straightforward. Non-productive time is vacation hours, sick time hours, you know, funeral leave, jury duty, education, holiday, all of those hours that are still um, paid hours, but not at the bedside. What I often uh, advise leaders to do is to take a look at your individual department. Now, your HR department has a number of the average for the whole hospital, the average percentage of non-productive time. But that includes departments that have very high turnover. It includes departments that have very low turnover. So I always advise the department leaders to annually take a look at your own department and say, how many uh, non-productive hours have we had in my department over the last year? And what percentage of that is of the total productive hours worked? And again, in your handouts, there's those equations to look at of how to calculate non-productive time. You would take the total number of PTO hours in your department and divide it by the number of FTEs. And that actually tells you um, how many average hours per FTE that you would anticipate losing in non-productive time a year. But if you take that number of hours of non-productive time per FTE and divide it by 2,080 hours that you expect an FTE to work, that would give you the percentage of lost time. So uh, I know that sounds kind of complicated right now, but when you see it in your handout, you will understand how to do that for your individual department. Faith, is is that uh, something that you've done before or what's your thoughts about non-productive time? Um, For me, it's about semantics. And I think that many of our listeners uh, might be familiar with the term direct or indirect care. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just want to make sure that people understand when we say indirect care, we're talking about non-productive, we're talking about meetings, we're talking about everything you listed. Um, But when we're talking about productive, that is the same as direct care. In other words, I am delivering care to the person who needs it, a client, a resident, a patient, however you term them in your facility, but that is for that staff member who's giving direct care. So I just think that there's, um, well, there's been kind of two camps on how to uh, define it. So I just wanted to make sure people understand if they come from uh, the direct care world, that that's what you are referring to now. 
that's a really good point and thanks for including that yeah we you know um you would think i i you you would think that we could all call things the same thing but we can't it's like when i talk about nursing assistance you know some people call them pcas some people call them pcts right why can't we just uh, you know come up on some nomenclature there that we are that language that we all understand but thank you so much for bringing that point in and you are absolutely direct care means i'm at the bedside on the unit taking care of my patient and non-direct doesn't mean it's not valuable you know non-productive not uh, indirect care doesn't mean it's not valuable it just means you're not at the bedside absolutely yeah good clarification so um that once you know your uh, your non-productive or indirect percentage, then you would add that to your previous calculations of how many you needed for seven days a week, uh, how many FTEs you needed for seven days a week in your department. You would add that non-productive percentage on there, and that would tell you that if that number, if you, if if staff were available, if the workforce was available, and you were able to hire, this is the number that the number of FTEs that you would want to hire to cover your department for your average daily census or the census that you've chosen to staff uh, for, for your budgeted hours per patient day for seven days a week and to include non-productive time. Now, what I always inspire people to do is to go ahead and do this step. Calculate how many FTEs that would be. Because during times where you have higher vacation time and you have, therefore, higher uh, overtime, uh, you can justify that by saying, well, actually, my non-productive or my indirect hours were higher this time, and that's why you're seeing maybe my dollars, my paid dollars were higher and my product, my productivity was still good. So you can use this data to help you with justifications along the way. So that is how we get to a staffing plan that we actually understand how many staff we need on our roster. In your handouts again, there's some practice examples, and that example goes through a 12-hour shift uh, a unit. So I invite you to look at that. It's the same math, but it's using a 12-hour shift model instead of a uh, eight-hour shift model. So that will be really, really useful to you. The other thing that's gonna be available to you is an Excel spreadsheet that actually does these calculations for you. Can you imagine? So uh, once you know the why behind the calculations, it's not so important that you know how to do the math as long as you know why you're doing the math. So those Excel spreadsheets that will be available to you will help you with that. And that's, um, that's a real benefit. Okay, before I go on to just a little bit about procedural areas, I want to just remind you the importance of a balanced schedule. Uh, you know, 
ensuring that uh, even when you're short staffed, which I know all of you are right now, ensuring that it's as evenly short staffed from day to day as it possibly can be. You know, you don't want uh, to uh, have one day that maybe your core number, let's just say your core number is six nurses per shift. You don't want one day for you to have six nurses and the next two days for you to only have two nurses scheduled. You want to make it as even as possible. And I tell a great, a great real life story. You know, I've been in this work long enough that I don't have to make anything up. <laughs> These are real life stories. So, uh, you know, I had a unit that had a core number of uh, needing on day shift of 14 people. And uh, it was Friday and their census was high and they actually needed 16 staff to cover. So they needed two more than what their core was, but they only had 11 staff scheduled because it was Friday. I hope you're all grinning right now because you know, self-scheduling, you do self-scheduling doesn't mean there still has a, doesn't need to be guardrails around self-scheduling. So they only had 11 people scheduled because at the time the director had no guardrails. Nobody wanted to work Fridays. But if I looked and I did, and of course they were calling and wanting incentive pay for to get people to come in because they're five people short. But when I looked back on their schedule, on Monday they had 12 people scheduled. Their core was 14. Nobody likes to work Mondays either. On Tuesday they had 16 people scheduled. On Wednesday they had 17 people scheduled. Their core was 14. Yeah, I'll work Wednesday. There's nothing going on Wednesday. There's nothing going on on Wednesday. On Thursday, they had 14, so they were right at their core. And on Friday, they had 11. If this schedule had been balanced, they had enough nurses to have 14 on every day. It just wasn't a balanced schedule. So making sure that even if it's short, that it's balanced is so important. Another big must-have in scheduling is taking, removing as much waste. When we talk about how are we going to redesign nursing for the future? And how are we going to get through? Uh, how are we going to provide the best quality care that we possibly can with the amount of staff that we have today? One of the ways that we have to come to the table with a stronger presence is removing waste. You know, I have already talked about supplies in the room. Who is stocking those supplies? Um, some of the units uh, that I've worked with, they've uh, constructed coffee and water stations so that visitors can get their own coffee and water for those of you who are allowing visitors back into your inpatient units. They can access their own coffee and their own water and not to disrupt uh, nursing staff to get those for them. Uh, equipment in the rooms, I uh, was had a responsibility for a 48 bed unit that only had seven Dynamaps. And over the course of three years, we made the business case to purchase a Dynamap for every room. Speeded care. Uh, we weren't hunting and gathering. We weren't wasting time waiting on each other. So taking waste out of the environment. 
making sure that if you do have more than one storeroom on a unit, they're both set up exactly the same. Very important. Uh, we already talked about pictures telling the story. So process improvement, you know, looking at rework, hunting and gathering, the distance traveled, additional handling, communication made easy, and the ordering process. So lessons for the leader. Uh, there are so many factors that influence why your department is different from another. Analyze the differences closely when trying to benchmark and when determining a model of care that is right for your patient population. Skill mix is very important and it needs to match the patient. Cost should be considered, however, it should be secondary to the patient needs. And even if you're not allowed to hire for non-productive or indirect time, know what that loss is to your department. So in your handouts, for those of you who are in procedural areas, there is a whole section on procedural areas. And I just wanna take a couple minutes to highlight what's different because a lot of it is very much the same. So in procedural areas, uh, especially in an OR or like a cath lab, uh, the equation for uh, you might want to use is the number of rooms multiplied by the number of hours that the room is available or the number of hours that the room is utilized. Why would I use, why would I say or? Because it depends on your organization. Does your organization say you need to have that room available so that if anybody wants to move into it, if there's a trauma, if there's a bump case, uh, we need to be able to open that room. Then you need to say, okay, I need to have staff for that room. But instead, if your organization says, no, I want you to only staff for your average utilization, then you would staff for utilization instead of availability. So I wanna bring that to your attention as you look over how you develop a staffing plan for procedural areas. The other thing that is different in procedural areas is you have more, what I say, fixed positions. So in procedural areas, you may have a scheduling secretary. You may have your own inventory clerk. You may have that person that runs the board, what we call, you know, the person that does all the, tra the air traffic control. Uh, you may have uh, your own housekeeping. You may have your own educator. So those are positions that I call non-clinical functions that uh, you actually need to add on in a procedural area outside of the clinical component. So you'll see that in the, uh, in the handouts that are available to you. So um, also, consideration for lunch relief is in there and there's formulas of how to factor in for all of you who work in procedural areas i'm sure you've never heard we always have a lunch slowdown we always have slowdowns during lunch uh, there's some calculations in those handouts that are going to show you how to factor that in so that you don't have a slowdown over lunch so I want to I, I want to include outpatient clinic practice before we leave each other, and outpatient clinic practice environments 
your measurement of work. Uh, when we talk about the measurement of work, remember we have hours per patient day or hours per OR minute, but in the clinic, that's hours per patient visit. And this includes the time rooming the patient, the assessment of the patient, the care of the patient in the room, and the follow-up needed outside the room. So don't forget, you know, calling in those prescriptions or if you're still calling in prescriptions instead of it being electronic all of those functions that are necessary to take care of those patients. You may wanna observe at different levels of care. So maybe there's different levels of care in your practice that uh, you could actually level these patients. And then you would go through the same process as we did for inpatients of how many staff do I need, the average number of patients multiplied by the hours per patient visit would be how many you need for the day, and it may be different by the day of the week. So remember that when you're looking at clinic practice. There are step-by-step -step instructions in your handouts for outpatient clinics, and we wanna do it right. We wanna, we wanna always know that we, um, we have the right people taking care of the patients, and that's what's most important to us. So as we look at this very, very complicated subject of staffing, we have talked over the last 90 minutes together about what's our current challenges. We've talked about travel nurses. We've talked about temporary staffing. We've talked about the importance of actually knowing how many staff we need in our departments. We've talked about how to calculate seven day a week coverage. And we've talked about how to add non-productive or indirect hours to that as well. We've looped in procedural departments and highlighted how those are different and you have those resources in your handouts. And we've included our outpatient clinic partners because we know that in the future, you're gonna be uh, asked to have this kind of skill as well and to um, really justify the amount of staff that you need to care for these patients. And we want your, you in the outpatient clinics to have the right amount of staff and the right skill level so that those patients do not come to the acute care areas because you had time to address their needs in the clinic practice. All right. It's been great to speak with you. This is a difficult subject to listen to without being in person, but I really appreciate the opportunity to reach out with a podcast to share with you the challenges of the workforce and the solutions to those challenges. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pam. I think that that was, a wonderful way to talk about uh, just how important it is to be able to understand how you put your schedule together, what those staffing needs are, but also how to be able to validate for other people who may not understand um, how important certain things are on certain days of the week to certain units. And I think the best part about podcasting is that 
uh, this is intense stuff, of course, but the notes that come with this episode walk the person through every example you gave, and that's something that they can uh, refer back to as they need to. And uh, I don't know, for me, maybe I would listen uh, to one of uh, these podcasts, uh, probably uh, more intently knowing what it, the topic is. And I think you helped all of us. I appreciate it very much, the new statistics to get us all on the same page. But it definitely is the way you can break it down and make it interesting and show us why, as a leader, I should know this. And I should not be dependent on someone else to uh, teach it to me. I should be an expert on how the schedule for the area that, or areas that I lead, how they're staffed. In today's world, we're all using different companies, as you pointed out, hours per patient days, the questionnaires that leaders are asked to complete to, to get to that number. I appreciated hearing how people look at that. And then I think it makes our questions more astute for our own finance departments when we return to work knowing this information. You've been listening and learning about essential finance skills for nurse leaders in our continuing podcast series. Join Pam and I for our next episode in which we shift our focus from justifying the recruitment of nurses to the bedside to keeping them there. We'll explore the link between finance and something we don't recognize nearly enough as having an impact on financial decision-making. That is employee engagement. This is Faith Roberts for Elite Learning. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.